Hi, and welcome to Com Church Talks. This is our sermon of the day. We pray it will be a real blessing to you. I know you'll be encouraged, challenged, and uplifted by the talk you're about to hear. This is going to be a really big theme for me over the years ahead. I'm just about to write a book on it. So it's the whole subject of the church being irrepressible, the church you can't hold down. And I, I know that we, we need to see that in this nation. One of my big challenges is that looking after 24 different denominations, basically what happens is the Archbishop of Canterbury gets the Anglicans, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster gets the Catholics, and pretty much I get the rest except the Orthodox. So <laughs> that's huge. And uh, it means that uh, the Anglicans have got more buildings than everyone else. The Catholics have got more people than everyone else. And we sort of sit in the middle, really, with all the Methodists, Baptists, United Reformed Church, Salvation Army, Assemblies of God, and the list goes on and on and on, most of the black-led churches and everything else. But one of the things I notice is this, that if we really are going to see the church making an impact in this nation, one of the things we've got to do is to stop whinging. I mean, I just am so fed up of the church whinging, you know. I get invited to, 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 to prayer events where... I'm expected to be there weeping over the state of the nation. And I think, what is wrong with the church, you know, that we just don't feel we can cope? I was asked to speak at an academic seminar recently, and the person who was my host for the session, and uh, I'd said, you know, that if you look at things in Scripture, you will realize the church does not need a conducive climate in which to thrive. The church can thrive in any climate. And so I've been making this point through most of the lecture. And then I just asked a rhetorical question, you know. So, so do we really need Christendom for the church to thrive? And the person chairing my session says, yes, we do. And I thought, man alive, you've not been listening to a word that I've said. <laughs> and, and I just want to get past that stage where the church really ends up in this nation being known for what we're against. You know, at the moment, I'm, I mean, I haven't had access directly to Boris, although I've hosted him on previous occasions, but Theresa May was very amenable, and she had a, a, a faith liaison person that I could speak to any time I wanted to in Downing Street. And sometimes people come to me and say, do the government really know what the church thinks? And I say, the government knows exactly what the church thinks. You tell them what's wrong, but you don't tell them what to do about it. And that's a real challenge. And so we've got to get beyond that stage of, you know, the, the whinging church and realize that we can actually be the transformative church, the church that can make a difference. If we are salt and light, it will change the nation. If we are the city set on the hill, it will make a big difference. So, you know, let's get on and be church. But, you know, one of the other challenges I face is that a lot of the churches I work, we just don't have that confidence They've lost confidence in what they can do. They've lost confidence in the gospel. And we need to see that confidence restored. And it's no good just providing alternative church. You know, a few great churches in a city is not going to do it. Because when you talk to the public out there, they don't know the good churches. <laughs> they just know the church. And their impression of the church isn't changed that much by one or two it needs to be somehow that we're actually going to do, you know that parable that Jesus told about you can put the leaven in the barrel and it'll change the whole lot? You need to rethink that parable. Some people have got this idea that every time it says leaven in the Bible, it's bad news. That's because at the Passover feast, 
they had to take the leaven out of the bread as a symbol of the fact when Christ died at Passover time, he would take away the sin of the world. But did you know that at Pentecost, they were told as part of their celebration to bake the bread with the leaven in it? It wasn't because you take the sin out at Passover and put it in again at Pentecost. It's because it's a different symbol. The leaven that goes in at Pentecost is a picture of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit that you only need to put a handful in the whole barrel and it will transform everything. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And somehow, I'm in this position at the moment. I, I was re-elected. It's the first time it's ever happened in the last 80 years. So I'm in a position where I've still got that influence that I want to use within the churches. I also have the privilege very often when the, when the presidents of churches together in England uh, and, um, meet. So that's the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, myself, the Orthodox Archbishop. I very often have to chair the meeting. And so I'm often in that position where I'm having to say to the Cardinal, hold on a minute, let the Archbishop have a word, you know. It, I never thought I'd find myself in that kind of position. <clears throat> but I also get extraordinary opportunities, like the, the government carol service at Westminster Abbey. This year I'm the preacher. You know, they let you know early, fortunately, so you get time to get over the nerves. But um, so I'm in a position where I know that I've got opportunities. But I also know that I need prayer support and I need people that can catch the vision because it's not enough to have one person at the top. I know everyone thinks the anointing flows down, but you know, the anointing's been flowing down a long time. So if you're not anointed yet, somehow you've missed out because the anointing's been flowing down for the last 2,000 years, even to the hem of the garment. So even if you think Dunstable's the end of the earth and it isn't, you know, you can be just as anointed as anybody else. <laughs> and we need that impact. And so, you know, that's my passion. And there's just two things I want to share with you before we, we turn to the word. One is, I really do need your prayer support. I'm not normally kind of pushy like this, but, you know, when you get the kind of invitations I'm getting at the moment and the kind of exchanges I'm having to get involved in, uh, in this country and overseas, I, I really do need more prayer partners. And, and if you can give financially, that helps. I don't have a church backing me. I handed my church over about 12 years ago so that I could do more on the inter-church stage, but it leaves you out a little bit in no man's land. So we're beginning to look for partner churches as well as partner individuals. But, but partner individuals are great. Partner individuals pray, they give, and uh, I, I just so appreciate that some of you here already are, but if you're not, there's a little leaflet that you can fill in. You can just give us your details and all the rest of it. And if you do that today, I've got three different books here. One's called Blessing the Nations, one's called The Power of Purity, and one's called Understanding God. If, if there's enough books out there, choose any two and you can have those for free if you filled in one of those forms today. If not, the books are five pounds each and you're welcome to buy those. But the other thing I wanted to mention is this. I started something last year called the MOVE Conference. We started it small, but we're intending to scale it up over the next year or so. So this year we're scaling it up. And the MOVE Conference is where I've found people around this country or overseas that have got a vision to really take the church forward dynamically. I want to bring them in so that everyone can hear them. 
So last year, I brought together a number of speakers. This year, I'm bringing in other speakers. We've got streams. It's one of these conferences where you get a workbook so you can come as a leadership team. And uh, we want you to make the most of it. So I'm just going to play a very quick clip. And it is a quick one because we're still waiting for the various speakers to send their little bits to put into the video. But this, uh, we can play it now and you'll just get a feel for it. So it's called the MOVE Conference, and it's on Saturday the 16th of November. And the amazing thing is that New Wine Church have said they're so excited about it that I can have all of their premises for the whole day. Now, if you know New Wine Church, they've got a big auditorium that seats well over 1,000. They've also got a smaller one that seats about 300. I'd love to get into the big one, but, you know, we want to really make the most of this. We want to tell churches. We want to get leadership teams there. You can actually sign up for it today, uh, the, the table at the back where I've got books and everything. If you want to sign up, you can actually book your ticket and give me your details, and we get the ticket to you. There's an early bird rate. It's £25, but it's down to £19 on the early bird, and the, and the group's even cheaper than that. But we do need people to catch the vision for this. There are some amazing things going on. One of the speakers that I've invited in has a vision. Every time his church meets, he wants 50% of the congregation there as unsaved people. When I told someone that, another church leader, they said, if I tried that in my church, the people I've already got would leave. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we need to re-educate church. You know, the thought of having 50% of people in the congregation that are unsaved scares some people to the point where they wouldn't even come. We've got to get to the point where we'd be excited about that. Now, it can be costly. The last time I preached in this guy's church, we were praying together before the, the meeting, and one of the ushers came in and said, we've just had someone walk in the door who's dressed as a woman, but I'm sure she's a man. What am I meant to do? We said, make them feel really at home. So, so, you know, that's the sort of scary thing that can happen <laughs> when you, if you are that scared. I mean, I'm excited about those kind of things. You know, the church has got to be open doors. I'm just about to do a conference in the Middle East. I'm, I'm cancelling most of my conferences for the rest of the year, the overseas ones, because my wife's had some health problems. But I've got to do this one in the Middle East because they're bringing all the Bible societies together in the Middle East for this conference in Turkey. And when I was praying about, because I'm the keynote speaker, I was thinking, what am I going to talk? And I, I decided that what I'd do, I'd give these churches, and some of them are under incredible pressure. The persecution level in some of these churches is huge at the moment in the Middle East. The exodus of Christians from the Middle East under pressure at the moment is unprecedented. People are just being scattered. And I was thinking, what do I share? Do you know, and the more I prayed about it, I thought, you've got to give these people a heavenly hope. You know, one of the things that you can do is you can find out where the book ends. We all know how it begins. But the last couple of chapters in your Bible are inspirational. It says this is what the church is like. The bride has made herself ready. And when you see the picture of that bride, it's the New Jerusalem. And what are the characteristics of the New Jerusalem? Strong walls but open gates. Wide open gates. Gates that never shut. I want to say to these folk in the Middle East that you're safe in Christ. No matter how much pressure you come under, the walls are strong, but you can keep the gates open. I also want to say to them that in the New Jerusalem, there's a river of life that doesn't stop flowing. And that the trees 
beside that river, not only give their fruit in season, but release their leaves for the healing of the nations. There's so much excitement in the book. (laughs) And then it says, it's constantly light there. There's no night there. There's not even a temple there because God himself in the midst of that city is the light and he's the temple. Come on, this is church. That's where we're heading. That's what we've been meant to be getting ourselves ready for. So that's why I'm keen about irrepressible church. It's the passion that's now firing up my heart. It's the reason I want to put on that conference. It's the reason I want people to get behind me in prayer. Because I know that we can do it. I know that we can re-envision and reinvigorate the church in this nation. Revival actually means to bring alive again that which was once alive. And when I look at the 24 denominations I've got, I look at the Methodist church. How did that begin? In an amazing move of God. It began as irrepressible church. And you know, what begins as irrepressible stays irrepressible. It's just that sometimes people forget what it was that gave them that bounce in the beginning. If I look at the Salvation Army, in the middle of the 1800s, they transformed the nation. Within years, they were in about multiple nations and were just working in areas where the churches previously had not even dared to go. Even today, I see that. I was working with a church in Nigeria. It was in one of the most affluent parts of Nigeria. And one day, the pastor came in and said, next Sunday, we're not going to be meeting here. And he told them where they were going to meet. And it was one of the worst no-go ghettos in Lagos. And these people were sort of like, you know, mostly sort of bankers and, uh, you know, professionals. And he said, I want you to bring all of your skills to this ghetto. If you can cook, you're going to cook there. If you can do beautician's work, you're going to do it there. If you're a doctor, you're going to be working there. Because we're going to go in and make a difference. And one of those places that we went in, you know, the police said, well, now that you've gone in, we can come in. (laughs) Which was a mixture, really, because the people living there thought, now look what you've done. (laughs) We were police-free until you lot arrived. (laughs) But, you know, it's just great when God starts making an impact. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about irrepressible church. And, And I've given you a little bit of a hint as to how it ends in the book. And the church has become this place where it's so confident in what it has, so excited about the strength of its walls that it can keep its gates open all the time. I think that's amazing. A church that knows that the river is never going to stop flowing and that the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. A church that even when at times it seems dark, knows that the light never stops shining. That's the kind of church we need to know. And somehow we've got to have that vision so strongly. Those of us, I mean, I know this church well. I know that one of the reasons I can call you irrepressible is that you've been through your times when you've been pressed down. You see, you can assume a church is irrepressible, but if it's never tested, you never really know. (laughs) But you know when a church has gone through it a bit, And yet it rises to an even greater level. You know that somehow it's got that irrepressible spirit. And I don't know whether you can believe this with me, but I'm believing to see whole denominations come alive again. 
I'm believing to see God move. At the moment, I'm quite excited what's happening in the Anglican church. I'm probably more excited than they are. But you know, there are so many Anglican churches at the moment that are just being completely transformed. Absolutely amazing. Some of the biggest congregations in our cities at the moment are in Anglican churches. Except when you walked in, you might not know it's an Anglican church. Because God's just doing some extraordinary things. And it doesn't surprise me because I sat with the... I mean, I talk to the Archbishop a lot, but I was talking to the person who who actually runs the Anglican Church. He's like the sort of business guy behind it. I was talking to him. He's now been replaced by another a few years back. And he said to me this. He said, I am no longer managing decline. I am maximizing opportunities. And we just need to see that take off, don't we? Where we can see the church saying, let's stop managing the decline. Let's start maximizing the opportunities. Let's stop whinging about the demise of Christendom and realize that actually we can thrive in any environment and then we can change the environment. So we know there's going to be a great ending. But I just want to remind you there's a great ending because there was a great beginning. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. And this is really where irrepressible church begins. It says in verse 40, And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And then it says in the beginning of the next chapter, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. You do notice that the church was constantly praying in the temple and that Peter and John went up at the ninth hour. You know, irrepressible church doesn't need the leaders to be there all the time. When I read that passage, you know what stands out at me? It says they continued, they agreed. There's something about irrepressible church that is actually in the dynamic of every member. It's not just the church. It's somehow that God has brought into being irrepressible believers. Now, I want to tell you from this passage that when Peter stood up and he exhorted and he said, you need to be saved from this perverse generation, he already had a conviction in his heart that God was about to do something amazing. Obviously, Jesus had been teaching them for three years. But in that upper room, when he talked to them shortly before he went to the cross, he gave them a vision of what would happen when the Holy Spirit came. He was going to lead them into all truth. He said, because I live, you will live also. And you know, when he was taken up into heaven, having shown himself alive by many infallible proofs, it said, he actually said to them, wait until you're endued with power from on high. Wait, that must have been extraordinary. They'd seen the risen Jesus. They wanted to go out onto the streets and say, you know the one you crucified, he's alive. But Jesus said, wait, don't say anything. Don't go out on the streets. 
Don't start proclaiming it. Wait until you live before you declare that I live. And it's that transforming power of the Holy Spirit that actually brings that irrepressible church into being. It's not enough that Jesus lives. It has to be that every single member of the church comes alive with resurrection power. And when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he was very bold. They'd spent 10 days preparing. In that 10 days, they'd searched the Scriptures. There was plenty to look at. Jesus had said, I'm bringing in a new covenant. What happened when the old covenant came in? When Moses brought the tablets down from the mountain, 3,000 people died. You know, if I'd been in that prayer meeting, I'd been one saying, if a new covenant's coming in and it's a covenant of life, why don't we believe that 3,000 people live when we preach the gospel? So I think there was faith and expectation. After all, this was going to be a time when the Jews were coming in from every known nation, and not just those that were born Jewish, but those who'd adopted Jewish faith. They were coming in, into Jerusalem. And so they were thinking, what an amazing opportunity. It's like God is gathering people at this, at this feast time. They were here when Jesus died. It was a presentation feast. But they're going to be here again at Pentecost. Wouldn't it be amazing if after we've been waiting and praying and God hasn't said exactly when the Spirit's coming, but wouldn't it be amazing if He came on the day of Pentecost and that new covenant was established and 3,000 people came to life? They would have read the prophet Joel, where Joel says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and my maidservants and my manservants will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. And they had that passion. So much so that, that on the day of Pentecost, when he stood up to preach, and he could probably preach in Aramaic because most of them would have understood it, <laughs> even though they'd heard the words in, of praise to God in many different languages. When he stood up to preach, he would have had that conviction in his heart. Now, I'm a teacher rather than a, an exhorter. But it's very interesting that after he taught the word that day, and it was a really good sermon, you know, it was a real expository sermon. You can see that he went through it and he presented it well, you know, give him all the marks for his sermon. But the thing about that day was he didn't stop after he taught. He carried on and he exhorted. And it said with many words he exhorted them. And I don't know whether you've been there when someone's been exhorting. The Methodists, when they started, they used to have preachers and exhorters. So when the preacher had preached, the exhorter would come up and start exhorting. Okay? Sometimes I do this if I'm overseas and I, I preach an evangelistic message. I'll say to the local pastor, look, now come on, you do the appeal. <laughs> they know you better than they know me. But when Peter exhorted, I, I can imagine he wasn't going to give up easily. So he was saying, you sir over there from Mesopotamia, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And you madam over there who've come all the way from wherever, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And it was that exhortation that in the end meant 3,000 people came forward that day to be baptised. And if you've got that idea that they actually received something less than the apostles had received, you need to think again. Because I'm telling you that when Peter stood up and said, if you repent and are baptised, you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children that if they had not received what the apostles received, there would have been a 3,000 person long queue outside Peter's house that night saying, why didn't we get what you got? You promised us. You're some kind of politician. We thought you were a preacher. There should be a difference. But anyway, you know, you missed that one. But... <laughs> 
But he exhorted because he was confident that God could do it in the life of every individual. And we need that confidence back again. We need believers that know the resurrection power of Jesus. And don't just know it, but know that the resurrection power of Jesus is constantly going to cause them to rise again. You see, there's no guarantee against getting knocked down. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul was knocked down over and over again. The great thing was he was never knocked out. You know, if you can get up every time, you will be an increasing testimony. You do realize that when Moses turned aside to see a burning bush, that's not what caught his attention. Bushes burn. The sun can cause things to shrivel up. But the thing about this bush was, as it was burning, it was not being consumed. The testimony of your resurrection life in your neighborhood should be that when your neighbors see you going through it, they don't go, oh, we see, you know, I mean, these Christians go through it just the same as we do. We do in some ways. But the way that we respond to what we go through should be different. That in the end, we know we've got resurrection life. Some of the songs that we've sung today really bear that out. He can put the pieces back together. He can cause us to rise up again. If we yield our lives to him, there will be evidence abundant to see that God is a God of resurrection life. I can testify it from all kinds of reasons. I had chronic fatigue for four years. I could preach Sunday mornings and then I'd have to sleep it off the rest of the week. I guess the rest of the congregation probably did the same. But, you know, at least for me, <laughs> I, 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 it exhausted me. You know, Wednesday mornings, my wife would say to, to, to one of my colleagues, collect him, take him out so I can clean the house. Get him out of bed. And, you know, I just hung on every day. I mean, my wife and I would pray every day and I'd say to her, I don't want to be better, I want to be well. I want to be well. And it took time. And you know, sometimes we're not prepared to give it time. We get impatient. We quit. But somehow, by God's grace, we stuck at it. <laughs> day in, day out. God, get me through this. And you know, I can tell you, I stand here today, and people say, why haven't you retired yet? Why should I retire? God's restored the years. God's restored the years. It's only to Him that you can give the glory. You know, I mean, most treatments for chronic fatigue don't work. <laughs> so in the end, it's got to be God. And the fact that somehow he gives resurrection life. And even when you think the life is gone and there's nothing left, somehow God can fan that flame and bring it back to full blaze again. And we need to see that blaze. We need to see fire in the pulpits again. You know, the Bible says Jesus' words, I've come to send fire on the earth. And what, you know, I'm waiting for it to be kindled. On the day of Pentecost, it was kindled. From that point on, even when the church was scattered, it was the fire of the Spirit that went everywhere. Today, one of our challenges is that we don't test that out. If God sent fire on the earth, why is there so little fire in our pulpits? You know, you have to ask the question, how sent are people? <laughs> it is only because you're sent that you've got any authority. You, you know what happened to the prophet Isaiah. God appears to him. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? He could so easily say, oh Lord, I'll go. 
But he didn't. He said, here am I, send me. He knew that the authority came from the sending, not from the going. That willingness to give yourself to God afresh. You know, it's a great fashion at the moment to try and ask where you are in the five-fold ministry. Have you played that game? You can get a little chart and you can tick off and you can say, oh, look, look, I'm an evangelist. Or, wow, look, I'm the apostle. You know, but in reality, that's not going to work. Because it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. If he hasn't captivated your heart, he can't give you to anybody. You can't give someone what you don't own. (laughs) You know, everything that's going to be given away this week is being given away because it's already been given here. If it hadn't been given, you couldn't be giving it away. So just be careful you don't leave anything behind, as Julian said. But you know, the Lord doesn't give away things that people have left behind. You know, your life, I don't know what to do with it. Maybe God can do something with it. Give it to him. Say, here I am, Lord, use me. Do something with me. Make my life count. And we need to see it count wherever we are. The church is great when it's gathered together, but it's even greater when it's scattered abroad. So where you are on Monday morning is more important than where you are on Sunday. Sunday is just get charged up in order to be where you are on Monday morning. And, and, and I don't mean just Monday morning, I mean the rest of the week too. But that's what we need. You know, sometimes we, we make this big mistake. We believe that the only thing that matters is what you do in church. I, I, I tell this story a lot, but there was a man who, uh, the church after much thought and prayer, decided they wanted him to be an usher. He'd be a welcomer here. And uh, they decided that, okay, we want you to be a welcomer. So, so they, they got the man forward in church and the elders gathered around and they prayed for him that he'd be a great welcomer. Lord, give this man the ability to make everyone feel at home. Lord, give this man the ability to speak well of our church. Lord, give him the ability to give out the notice sheets. It was one of those kind of churches, you know. And after they prayed all these things for him and, you know, and the church promised they'd keep praying that he'd be a good usher, he said to someone afterwards, he said, it's amazing, that's the first time the church has prayed for me and they prayed me for me to give out notice sheets. Why don't they pray that I can do my job well seeing I'm the HR director and have 500 people underneath me? Do you see the problem? We don't realise the impact that we have and resurrection life needs to be expressed throughout the community. So these people were irrepressible church because they'd got an irrepressible spirit within them. They'd been born again by the power of God. They'd responded to that call. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they experienced the fullness of that salvation, knowing the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, bringing them to life again, knowing the resurrection life of Christ within them, making them the kind of people who could be a testimony, not just give a testimony. People that could take the knocks and rise again. And that was the first key that we see to that irrepressible church. The second key is this, that they were coming together as a new community. When it talks about escaping from this perverse generation, it's saying there is another kingdom. There is another way of doing things. There is an alternative way of being. And one of the things that really made that church irrepressible in the beginning was they understood that there were things that they needed to do together. It's great to be born again and have our personal testimony, 
But the testimony when we come together is even greater. It's like the light that's the city set on the hill. Suddenly there's a greater brightness because all of the light is shining together. I know from that we then go out and make an impact. But this church understood that. Jesus had been preaching the kingdom, didn't often use the word church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the strategies of the enemy will not come against it. But he talked about kingdom. And so these people came together to demonstrate an alternative kingdom, to show what God could do. Almost like to be a, a, a counterculture within the culture, not denying the culture in which they were, but offering something more in the midst of it. And so that's why they came together. They came together to learn. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to prayer. And I believe that they would have prayed that they would make an impact out there in the community. I don't think they just prayed, God bless our church. And Jesus had been preaching kingdom. He'd been preaching to them that, that there's a transformative work going on. And there's something, if you want an irrepressible church, yes, you've got to have irrepressible individuals, but you've also somehow got to come together with a vision that's strong enough that you believe that together we can make a difference in this place. You know, there's a confidence that comes, and I can see it here, that you can make a difference in, in Dunstable. And that's amazing. But we need to see that conviction coming upon every church, that we're here to make a difference. One of the things I'm having to do at the moment is to chair a commission. Um, it's something that the Ministry of Housing and local government have been getting behind. But it's looking at how the church in this nation is contributing to social cohesion. I know that sounds incredibly boring, but what we're discovering is this, that actually the church is incredibly well thought of in terms of what it can do within the communities. And I know that people say, well, you know, we've lost so much ground. And we have, you know, there was a time when, you know, the civic role of the church was really important. Some of us remember those times when they, they'd always have a clergyman standing next to the mayor and they'd always have someone doing this and they'd always have someone doing that. And in many ways, it was tokenism. But I can tell you that we might have lost civic ground, but we're actually gaining credibility on the ground because somehow the church is making an impact. The more it grasps the fact that we're meant to be kingdom people, not isolated people, then that's going to be transformative. That's such a big thing to me. The church needs a vision that will make an impact. We're not just here to, to polish up our perfection, although that is part of what we're meant to be doing. We are meant to be improving in our own individual lives. But we're also coming together to make an impact. This church made an impact. And I come back really as a third point to the fact that somehow there was a wholehearted engagement I read it to you, but this is just so impacting me at the moment that, you know, I, I was tempted to write a book on leadership because I, I was beginning to think that the big challenge in the church is leadership. And then I began to realize that actually some of our churches are so overled that there's no space left for anyone to do anything. <laughs> that we end up, everything sort of from the platform. 
and very little rises from within. Some of the churches I go to suffer from what I call short pillar syndrome. You know, when Paul went to the church in Jerusalem, it says he looked for the pillars. In other words, he was looking for key people in the church that were performing a distinct function. What is the function of a pillar? Well, three things really. It has to stand tall. It has to be stable. And it has to be strong. And that's about it. You can put them outside a building, but the ones outside the building are just there for attraction. But the ones that really carry the weight are the ones that are inside the building. Paul wasn't looking for the attractive pillars that might be sort of tempting people to come in. You know, the columns that you see outside. He was actually looking for the ones that were carrying the weight. And more and more leadership needs to understand that as its key role. That we're here to facilitate. You know, I've looked at various words as to what God wants me to do with my life. I could educate. I'm a teacher. I've got PhD. I've got all of those things. I could say my role is to educate the church. But I didn't feel that's what God was saying. I could say from my privileged position at the moment that I could regulate the church. But I knew that wasn't what God was saying. I could sort of domesticate the church, you know, calm it down. And there's a lot of leaders that do that, you know, get the church calmed down. The, 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 the less challenging the church is, they think, the more people have come to it. I don't believe it. I, I think that, that doesn't work. So what did God tell me to do? If it wasn't regulate or educate or domesticate, it was facilitate. That's all. Just facilitate. Make some space. Make some space for people to do what's on their heart. You don't have to do it all yourself. There are probably people that can preach better than I can. I'm probably proving that this morning. You know, and there are people that can do so many things. And we just need to make the space. Some churches I go into these days, I can know as soon as I walk in what the problem is. I've called it short pillar syndrome. Now just imagine that you've got a building that's got pillars and the pillars are very short. Everyone would be cramped. You can't even move around. You can't do much where there's short pillar syndrome. And short pillar syndrome comes when the leadership feels insecure. We can't let anyone rise above us <laughs> because if someone rises above us, where would that leave us? Actually, we need to be making space. And we need to be making space, space cross-generationally. I planted my first church, I think, when I was 24. And these days, we don't even give people a chance until they're, what, 42? And most of the leaders that are my age somehow have forgotten how young we were when we started. And then we look at people and think, well, you can't do it, you know. Well, we couldn't do it either when we started, but at least there were some people giving us the opportunity. There were some space creators out there that were prepared to say, if you have a go, we can clear up after you. But you know, by God's grace, there wasn't always as much clearing up to do as might have been expected. 
Because what we were finding was that there was an energy in the church. And you know, let the prophets speak and let the others judge. I know that's gone out of fashion. I do more question and answer things now at the end of conferences. Because I want people to judge what I've said. I want people to say, I didn't agree with that. And then we can talk about it. But you know, these days when you, you stand on the platform and you're considered to be sort of, what am I, three foot above contradiction here? That's not the way it works. We've got to be space creators. We've got to let people find their voice, find their vision, find their calling, find their heart. Feel valued. William Carey, the famous missionary who started so much of the missionary work in India, wanted to go out as a Baptist missionary, and in the end he did. But when he first offered himself, do you know what they said to him? After he'd shared his vision, they said to him, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without you. And his response was, well, I'm not going to sit down. <laughs> I'm going to rise up. And we're going to find ways in order to get out there and in order to make a difference. We need that kind of challenge. I don't want to see, forgive me, I don't want to see leadership-driven church. I want to see church-driven leadership. Is that too radical? <laughs> Where the energy is coming from within so that the leaders can lead, they don't have to drive. Have you ever sat in your car and tried to steer it when it's not moving? It's hopeless. You don't get anywhere and the wheel doesn't turn very far. I feel for all the church leaders are trying to steer cars that aren't moving. Are you getting a sense of why I'm excited about irrepressible church? I mean, this is what the church is. We've just seen how it began. That is church DNA. That's com church DNA. Theoretically, that's every church DNA. But we've got to help churches discover what our real DNA as church is. To show this is how we began. This is how we're going to end up. And somehow, by God's grace, this is what we've got to be in between. We've got to be living this stuff. We've got to be doing it. When we do this MOVE conference, I just want to bring people together with that kind of passion. That say, it can be done. We can take the church forward. We can see it move. And I know that churches like this, where you're really doing it, and you've got that testimony out there, are so, so, so important. Don't hide this light under a bushel. It's not just for you. I remember years back when I was talking to Doug and I was saying to him, you know, your church is the most servant-hearted church I know. When I was running the Billy Graham thing back in 89, I had so many participating churches in London, about 2,500, I think, participating churches in the end. And when we started doing the Maurice Sorello meetings a year or so later, we started looking for churches. It was difficult to mobilize some. In fact, I found a lot of churches that we missed out 
during the Billy Graham campaign. But you know, one church stood out, and it was this church. And it didn't stand out because you, like so many, took a stand and put a big poster up with a picture of Doug and, you know, and everyone had to come and look at it and get the leaflets about Com Church. It stood out because you served. You served. And I remember saying to Doug, you know, ages ago, I said to him, look, your church runs, basically runs Mission to London once a year. I just think that your church could actually be running as a conference center church on a, ba- on a regular basis just because of what I'd seen. And I still look at this church and I think this church can be an example church. A real church of that irrepressible power of the Spirit. So I want to share that with you. I, I'm not sharing this to condemn anyone. I'm sharing this to encourage you. And I don't want to encourage you to the point where you're just patting yourself on the back and not pressing forward. There's a lot you can pat yourself on the back for. You know, one of the exciting things about holding this conference at New Wine, I was on the presbytery of New Wine Church when it started in Woolwich. It was myself and Tundi Bakary and one other, I think. Pastor Tayo Adiemi had been attending my church at Cornerstone before he started New Wine. After 20 years, we lost Pastor Tayo. I did his funeral. Five years later, I was doing the committal for Pastor Michael who'd taken over from him. But I can tell you, that church will not get put down. It doesn't matter what they go through. There's a new spirit that's rising up in that place. And it's just exciting. I want to be where things are happening. And I want to make things happen where they're not happening. And when a church like that says, do you know, we want to be the place that hosts the MOVE conference. I'm not going to turn that down. (laughs) because I see that irrepressible church. So let's just pray together, shall we? Before I hand back the microphone. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You said you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You declared from the beginning that your church was going to be irrepressible. No matter how much it gets put down, it's going to rise up in strength. And we just want to thank you, Lord, that we've had this opportunity, not just to see the end as it is in the book of Revelation, but to see the beginning as it happened on that day of Pentecost. When the church came alive, and even though it went through persecution and pressure, it stayed alive. It kept that vision going. It had that sense of engagement as people were given space to be who they are. We pray that your church today will be that kind of church. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Com Church Talks. We'd love to hear from you and you're welcome to any of our Sunday services or midweek comms. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at www 
comchurch.org.uk or find us on Facebook. God bless.